So again, this morning, church, we have the awesome privilege of joining together to celebrate the work of God through the ordinance of baptism. A little over a month ago, we're preaching through Matthew, and and we heard Christ's promise in Matthew 16, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And we learned that day that we as a local church are called by Jesus to recognize those who become part of Christ's church. We're called to recognize those who respond to the gospel of Jesus with repentance and faith. And the way we respond to their response is by the binding work of baptism and membership. We bind those who have repented and believed in membership and baptism. Well, following that sermon about a month ago, over the next 24 hours, I had four separate conversations, completely unrelated from each other, in which someone expressed their desire to receive baptism. I just want to share that because it's an amazing example of God's working through his word. Christ said, I will build my church. And then in four separate conversations, we have four separate people asking to be baptized because they want to follow Christ and be identified with his people and his church. The elders have spoken with each person requesting baptism. They are Caleb Freeman, Olivia Acock, Aubrey Johnston, and Lucy Moser, my daughter, And this morning, through baptism, we thankfully celebrate Christ's faithfulness to his promise to build his church through his word. So we get to do today. Now, to orient our minds and hearts to what we are doing in baptism, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, where we see the very first baptisms of the early church. Here's what's going on in Acts 2. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. And when he ascended, he instructed his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And so the disciples and a little more than a hundred believers waited and prayed. And on the day of the Jewish festival of Pentecost, a mighty rushing wind came through. Tons of fire appeared and the Holy Spirit came upon all the believers. Each of them began speaking the gospel and praising God in various languages of all the visitors who were in Jerusalem at the time. And then the apostle Peter stood up and he preached the first sermon of the early church to all who were there. This leads us to our passage this morning, which comes immediately after Peter's Pentecost sermon. Our text is Acts 2, verses 37 through 39. And I'm going to read all the way through verse 41 for our reading. Acts 2, verses 37, and we're going to read through verse 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So this morning we're going to look closely at what happened with these 3,000 people who were baptized in Acts 2. What happened to those people that day? So that we can better understand what's happening today with the four people that we will be baptizing at the conclusion of our service. 
We're going to see four things about what happened with those people that day. Four things about what happened to the 3,000 that were baptized. We're going to see what they heard, what they felt, what they did, and what they received. What they heard, what they felt, what they did, and what they received. So first, let's look at what they heard. What they heard. In Genesis chapter 1, the very first story of the scriptures teaches us that there is a creator God who created all things out of nothing. And he did it by the power of his word alone. He spoke and it happened. In the New Testament, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Well, how does God accomplish this act of new creation? It's the same exact way he accomplished his act of creation in the beginning. He accomplishes new creation by the power of his word alone. Just as God created all things by his word, so God recreates our hearts by his word. And our passage today shows this truth by starting with the simple phrase, Now when they heard this. Verse 37, Now when they heard this. This is the domino that starts all the effects in their lives that would go on for the rest of their lives in these believers. They heard something. They heard something. What is it that they heard? Well, I already mentioned that Peter has just preached a message to the people explaining the meaning of the coming of the Holy Spirit to them. He's explaining uh, what is happening as these believers are filled with the Spirit. And the theme of that message that he preached is Jesus Christ. Just scan your eyes up a few verses and see how Jesus Christ is the central theme of the sermon Peter preached. In verses 22 and 23, he says, Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So so this is a message about Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus of Nazareth who did these miracles and these mighty works and that they crucified Verse 32, look at verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Jesus of Nazareth, his his powerful, attesting life, his crucifixion, this Jesus resurrected, this Jesus God raised up. And then verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus who was crucified, this Jesus God raised up, this Jesus is Lord and Christ. It was a message about what Jesus did. He displayed the works of God in his life. He was crucified according to God's definite plan. After he was crucified, God raised him up from the dead and he ascended into heaven. This is the work of Jesus. It was also a message about the person of Jesus. Peter begins by describing the man Jesus of Nazareth. A man, a human, just like you and me. But he ends by proclaiming that this Jesus is both Lord and Christ. This is who Jesus is. For the first time in the history of the church, the person and work of Jesus Christ was proclaimed. Jesus is the God incarnate Savior King who was crucified and resurrected for our salvation. This is what the 3,000 people heard that day. Well, this morning, 2,000 years later, this message has not changed. 
Each of the four people being baptized today have heard this very same word of Jesus Christ. They've heard it preached from this pulpit and from others. But not only that, they've had it taught to them week after week by loving Sunday school teachers and youth group leaders. Not only that, they've had it taught and reinforced day after day by faithful, believing parents and grandparents. Romans 10 tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the reality we're celebrating this morning, the reality of God's act of new creation through the power of his word that each of these four has heard. Baptism is their response to the word of Christ. Caleb, Caleb, Olivia, Lucy, Aubrey, baptism is your response to the gospel that you've heard. Now, what what does this look like? What is this response? What, What happens when someone hears the word of Christ in faith. And this leads us to the second thing we need to see this morning about those who were baptized, what they felt, what they heard and what they felt. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. They experienced what Hebrews 4.12 tells us we experience when we hear the word of God. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. They heard the word of God, the truth of Jesus Christ, and it cut through them like a two-edged sword to their inner man, to their very heart. What this means is that they felt guilty. They felt guilty. They felt the reality of their guilt for what they had done. They felt a weight on them. They felt convicted of their sin in their conscience. Have you ever felt guilty for something? It just weighs on your spirit. It's what they felt that day. We can only imagine the weight of guilt that they felt in their hearts as Peter's words dawned on them, you crucified the Christ. You crucified the Messiah. Not only did they crucify the Christ, but then he says, and he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. And the Father has said to him that one day he will subject all his enemies under him. That's not good news for someone who killed the Messiah. He's going to judge his enemies one day, and you killed him. He's Lord and Christ. So they not only felt guilt for the sin, but they felt a proper and healthy fear of the judgment that they deserved for their sin. They knew what they had done. They knew that they deserved judgment from him. Listen, the gospel is good news, but it's good news only in light of the bad news. And the bad news is this, that every one of us is guilty before our creator, God. Every one of us deserves judgment for our sins. Listen, though we were not present at Jesus' crucifixion, the testimony of Scripture so clearly describes our sinful condition that we can be assured that if we were there, we too would have been yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. If I was Pilate, I too would have washed my hands and said, do what you want with him. If I was Peter, I would have fled away and denied him three times. This is who we are. 
we share the same guilt that these 3,000 people shared that day. This is why we sing, it was my sin that held him there. Because it's our guilt. And we face the same judgment of God that they faced, which is eternal righteous wrath and separation from our Creator. Each of the four people being baptized today have given testimony to this inward knowledge of guilt for sin. As we talked with them, this was one thing that every one of them testified to as we talked with their parents, that there's, there's, there's a feeling of guilt and need there. Each has experienced the living and active Word of God leading them to a personal conviction of their sin and their own need. I can tell you that as a parent, you don't ever enjoy seeing your child struggling with feelings of guilt and fear. It's tempting in that moment where they're cut to the heart to just give comfort and say, it's, it's okay, sweetheart. Nothing bad's going to happen. But we need to realize the grace of what God is doing when he cuts to the heart through his word. We need to say with God's word in that moment, you really are a sinner. And you really do deserve judgment. And you really do need a savior. And I call you to believe in him. This, this feeling of guilt is a grace because it leads them to ask the question that the 3,000 people asked that day. Brothers, what shall we do? Only when you're feeling the guilt of sin and the right, true fear of judgment will you say, what, what can we do? Is there anything we can do to escape the judgment that we deserve for our sins? The good news of the gospel is that there's an answer to that question. And this leads us to the third thing we need to see about those who were baptized, what they did, what they did. Before we look at Peter's reply to that question, let's think about what the answer could have been. Br brothers, what shall we do? The answer could have been, there's nothing you can do. God is righteous in his judgments, and judgment is what you deserve. Th th this could have been the answer. And if this was God's answer to our sin, none of us could utter a word of protest to God. If I was convicted of my sin and knew I needed to be judged, like, what, is there anything I can do? God could say, no, there's not. You deserve judgment. And I couldn't say, but God, no, I couldn't say that to him. We couldn't say that to him. We have sinned and judgment is what we deserve. And he is righteous and God owes salvation to no one. But here's the good news. Peter doesn't give that answer to the question. He doesn't say there's nothing you can do. He says, brothers, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is what you must do. You must repent. This is the good news of the gospel, that there is a way to be forgiven. There is a way to be saved from the judgment we deserve. There is a way for that weight to be lifted, and the way is repentance. Repentance is the thing that guilty sinners must do to be saved. Repentance. And so it's of the utmost importance that we understand what repentance means. Now sometimes it can be more helpful to rule out what it doesn't mean first. Okay, So let's think about that first. What does repentance not mean? Repentance doesn't mean simply feeling sorry for your sins. There's a kind of feeling sorry for sin that is self-centered and worldly. 
King Saul was sorry for his sins, but he never repented. Judas was sorry for his sins, but he never repented. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for the things you've done. It also doesn't mean simply trying to live a better life. The call to repentance is not a call to self-effort. It's so important to understand that. Repentance does not mean try harder, do better. It's not a call to try to make up for your evil deeds with righteous deeds, to try to tip the scales in your favor. Our good deeds could never do that. They could never cancel out our sinful works. Repentance is not a call to just try to live a better life. Well, what does it mean then to repent? Not just feeling sorry, not self-effort. Repentance means to turn from one thing to another. A change of mind takes place that causes you to turn from something to something else. And in the gospel, the call to repent is a call to turn away from your sin and to turn to God. You can think of it this way. Repentance is a forsaking of something for the sake of something else. A forsaking of something for the sake of something else. So what are we called to forsake? We're called to forsake our sin and ourselves and our rebellious disposition of our, on our own lives against God. We forsake all of that. What are we forsaking that for? For the sake of what? For God. We're forsaking sin for God. We're forsaking sin for reconciliation with Him. We're forsaking sin for a restored relationship of love and worship to our Creator. To repent is to turn from your sins to God, to forsake your sins for the sake of a restored relationship with God. Now Peter doesn't just say repent. He says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Now how are we to understand the relationship between those two things, repentance and baptism? Are these two separate things that we must do in order to be saved? Is baptism a necessity for salvation? Now the reason we need to answer this question is because there are many people in our day and age who insist on that very thing. Unless you are baptized, they say, you cannot be saved. So is that what the New Testament teaches? Well, if we take in the entire scope of the New Testament's answer to the question, brothers, what shall we do? Here's what we actually see. This is very important. While there ought to be no such thing as an unbaptized believer. So say that verse. There ought to be no such thing as an unbaptized believer. You never, ever, ever see that in the New Testament. Yet, baptism is not a necessity for salvation in addition to repentance. Rather, baptism is an expression of repentance. So again, while there should be no such thing as an unbaptized believer, baptism is not a necessity for salvation in addition to repentance. It's an expression of repentance. If we just read through the book of Acts, we can see this truth come to the surface. Just listen to some of these verses. You can turn there if you'd like. But Acts 13, 37 and 38, Paul says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be free by the law of Moses. So everyone who believes is freed. Not everyone who believes and is baptized is freed. Just everyone who believes is freed from that which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. You and your household, you will be saved. Again, the command is to believe in the Lord Jesus. 
In Acts 17, Paul speaking to the Athenians, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooks, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So here it's repentance that's mentioned. It's the only thing that's mentioned. Not repent and be baptized. He commands all people to repent. And then in Acts 20, Paul summarizes his ministry this way. He says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There, there we see them both, repentance and faith. And so there's context where you see repent, context where you see believe, context where you see both, and then there's one like ours where baptism is included. So what do we do with that data, so to speak, as we synthesize those different calls? Is it belief that saves? Is it repentance? Is it baptism? Well, we know that baptism is not an additional component to how you're saved because if it was, how could they ever leave it out, right? How could they ever say uh, anything but, you need to be baptized, make sure you don't forget baptism because if that's what saved you, you, you would need it every time. But, but instead, think of it this way. What's the role of baptism? Well, just consider the birth of a baby and the function of birth certificates, okay? Just here's an illustration for us. A baby is born... And then, and then we have birth certificates, right? Now, let me ask you this question. Does a birth certificate cause that baby to be born? No, right? Not at all. A birth certificate contributes in no way to the actual birth of a baby. The birth certificate is not a contributing factor to that baby's existence. What's it for, then? Well, it's a public recognition of the reality that there's a new person in the world, that this baby has actually been born. The birth certificate testifies to that reality, but it doesn't make that reality happen. Well, that's what baptism is like. Baptism doesn't contribute to or cause someone's salvation. It testifies to the reality of someone's salvation. It testifies to the work of God in having saved someone. It's a public recognition of something that's already happened, namely repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is a public testifying to what God has done, not a work that we do to save ourselves. Well, this is why the baptism Peter calls for is baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. You see that in Acts 2. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not just be dunked in the water. No, be baptized in his name. What does that mean? It means that you're baptized as someone who is calling on the person of Christ and trusting in the work of Christ. To be baptized in his name is to be baptized as someone who receives the word of Christ. And that's exactly what we see in verse 41. Look at verse 41 again. So those who received his word were baptized. Those who received his word, the word of Jesus, the word about this Jesus who was crucified, who was risen again, who was sent into heaven, who's both Lord and Christ, they received his word, then they were baptized. Baptism marks that reality. So each of the four people being baptized today have professed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, their commitment to live a life of repentance with him as their Lord. Their baptism does not save them. Putting in them in the water is not the moment they're saved. God saved them. They've repented and believed, and we recognize that through baptism. We mark it together through baptism. Well, this leads us to the fourth thing we need to see this morning about those who were baptized, what they received. What they received. 
He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We can point to two things in this verse that the people received through repentance and faith, symbolized in their baptism. Two things. There's a foundational blessing, and there's an ultimate blessing. The foundational blessing is forgiveness of sins. This is the answer to their guilty conscience and to their fear of judgment. If you repent, God will forgive you. If you repent, God will forgive you. Church, just listen to these words from the Psalms that speak to us the blessing of forgiveness. Just take these in. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Forgiveness is the foundational blessing of the gospel. God does not treat us the way we deserve to be treated. He does not give us what our sins deserve. He separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. We could never stand before him otherwise. But with God there is forgiveness. In Christ, on the basis of his sinless life, his sacrificial death, God grants forgiveness to all who repent and trust in him. This is the wonderful and foundational blessing of the gospel. And here's why I say it's foundational. Ask it as a question. Why should we want forgiveness? Why is forgiveness from God such a great thing? The answer is not simply because it means we're saved from judgment. No, forgiveness is the foundation for a much greater blessing, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sins is the foundational blessing. The gift of the Spirit is the ultimate blessing. Consider what the gift of the Holy Spirit means. The gift of the Spirit is the gift of the presence of God Himself dwelling inside of us. Our sins separate us from God's presence, but through forgiveness, the foundational blessing, now our very own bodies become temples of the living God in whose presence there's fullness of joy. God could have forgiven us and let that be it, but he gave us his spirit to live inside of us. Or consider that the gift of the spirit is the sign of our adoption into God's family. The spirit cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. Forgiveness is the foundation for adoption, but adoption is the greater blessing. J.F. Packer writes in Knowing God, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. And it is. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. He doesn't just pronounce us clean and cast us away from himself. No, he brings us into his family. Forgiveness makes it possible. But the Spirit brings it home to our hearts. We're in his family. And finally, the gift of the Spirit, as we heard in our call to worship, is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it. The gift of the Spirit signifies to us that we have been granted eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. The gift of the Spirit is God's down payment to us on every promise that is still to come. This is the promise of God to those 3,000 who were baptized in Acts 2. Forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Spirit. This is the promise that God makes to Caleb, Olivia, Aubrey, and Lucy today. Through their faith in the name of Jesus Christ, on the basis of his death for sins and resurrection, God promises to forgive all their sins. And he grants them the ultimate blessing of the Holy Spirit himself in their hearts. So we celebrate in baptism today. But listen, this promise is not just for them. This promise is for all people. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So Peter says this promise is for you, that is those who had crucified Christ, those who were asking what shall we do. He says this, this promise is for each one of you, but he says it's not just for you. It's also for your children. It's for the next generation. If they repent and believe, they too can be forgiven. They too can receive the Spirit. And it's such a wonderful blessing that today we get to see that four of our children, Redeemer, have believed the promise, have trusted in the promise, because the promise is for them too. And it's not just for Israelites. It's for all who are far off, you and your children and all who are far off. It's a promise to all people in all places through all time until Christ returns from Jews in the first century in Jerusalem to these four in Oxford, Alabama, 2,000 years later, and for any one of us today, the promise is for all who repent and believe. And then look how it ends. Whoever the Lord our God calls to himself. What this means is that in the hearing of the word, in the cutting to the heart, in the repentance and faith, all of it is God doing his saving work. The hearing of the word, the cutting to the heart, the repentance and faith is God's work. He's calling his people to himself. And so in celebrating baptism, we are ultimately celebrating the saving hand of God in the lives of Caleb and Olivia and Aubrey and Lucy. God has called them to himself. As we prepare to baptize them today, I call you too to hear the word of Christ. Jesus is the Son of God incarnate who died for our sins and rose again. I call you to recognize your personal guilt before the Lord for your sins and your need to be saved from judgment. I call you to repent, to forsake your sins for the sake of relationship with God and to place all your trust in the name of Jesus. I hold out the promise that whoever calls on the name of Jesus will be forgiven of their sins and given the gift of the Spirit. And if you have done these things and have never been baptized, then I urge you to prayerfully consider being baptized as a celebration of God's saving grace in your life.